electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Yep. Happy Friday, and welcome to the Halftime Report, everybody. Thank you. I'm Brian. Scott's back next week, and the question really is, when do America's jobs come roaring back? The August jobs number was a bit of a bust, but... Does it even matter to stocks? Everybody has an opinion, and we will hear them with your investment committee today. Shannon Sococho, Rob Seachin, Michael Farr, Jim Leventhal, and John Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. All right, let's get a check now on the markets and your money to wrap up the week. And stocks, well, look at that. They are mostly steady on the back of that jobs number. Yeah, a little bit of red. We're down 103 on the Dow, about three-tenths of 1%. But overall, the trend has remained your friend. It has been nothing really but up the last couple of weeks and months. Why do we say that? Well, the S&P 500 is on track for a fourth positive week in the last five. The Nasdaq on pace for a second week of gains. And here's a uh, random but interesting stat. 52 stocks in the S&P 500 are now up 50% or more this year. Four stocks, Moderna, Bath & Body Works, Fortinet, and Nucor, they have doubled. But let's get back now to the, the macro and talk jobs. The Fed and the market. And let's be honest, don't tell anybody. The jobs number really hasn't moved stocks in like years. I'm not sure this number is anything different to anybody because everybody's kind of waiting to see what's going to happen to the job market in a few months when most of the remaining states roll off their extended benefits over the weekend. Shannon Sakocha, am I wrong? Is the jobs number much more important than I think it is? I think in the short term, it's not necessarily all that important. I think, you know, the number of times that we've uttered this is, you know, an incredibly important economic data point over the last couple of years. And we've seen very little reaction from the stock market points to the fact that it's probably nothing we're looking at in the next week or so. But we go back to last week and we were talking about Jackson Hole and we discussed how, you know, Powell really is focused on employment. Inflation is where it needs to be from a target perspective. Many of us believe it's transitory and it's going to fall back to the target, you know, 2% range or so. And so if we look at employment, there are a number of open questions. The concern for me in looking at these numbers is that I think that there has been um, perhaps a naivete around the effects of the Delta variant on consumer behavior. You don't necessarily need to have lockdowns and increased social restrictions to result to have this behavioral response from consumers. And so I think as we look at something like leisure and hospitality jobs numbers that were essentially flat in this report, I think that there are going to be some improvement in the openings versus um, the demand for these types of jobs. But I also think we need to be cautionary that we haven't hit yet this delta wave here in the Northeast and that the consumer cyclical trade may be a little bit softer over the next couple of months. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, Jim, you had uh, Dr. Gottlieb on today saying, you know, they ex- I, I think he was saying seasonality. I know it's kind of a dirty word in the scientific community. We're not going to talk about, you know, the virus and we're not epidemiologists. But Gottlieb this morning on CNBC said he thinks we're going to have another wave in the Northeast, kind of like we did last year. And hopefully that will be it. Uh, and we only talk about this in as much as there may be a shift in consumer behavior, which means a shift in earnings, which means a shift in GDP. What's sort of your take on the whole package? Well, we're not epidemiologists, um, but I think we're doing a little bit of hand-wringing here on the concept that the market is at all-time highs when this Delta variant, as Shannon very well pointed out, hasn't really hit yet in the Northeast, and it may. But here's the thing. I, I think when you look underneath the, uh, the index levels, you see that the reopening trade has just fallen flat on its face for the last three months. So, um, Sully, you pointed out, I think you said 52% of the S&P 500 is up 50%. Let me give you a different way of looking at this. 95% of the names in the S&P 500 have gone through a correction at least once this year. Many of them more than a correction. Many of them more than once. So, you know, when we're talking, as I said, about maybe hand-wringing at the level of the markets, you have to look underneath the index and see that there's been a rolling correction that's gone on for quite some time. Now, I think we could get a correction at any point in time, but with a Fed that is, frankly, still accommodative. I don't care what they do with taper. They are accommodative until they raise rates, which is at least a year off. Any dip is likely to be far less than a correction, as we've seen over the last 10 months. I wouldn't expect more than a 5% decline. More to the point, there are huge opportunities in the reopening trade right now, particularly if Dr. Gottlieb is right. Yeah, and you know, Michael Farr, that's kind of the point. I mean, and and not to be glib about it, but whether or not the Fed starts to taper in November or January, does anybody really care? Is it going to matter to the markets if it's another 30 or 60 days? Tapering is not tightening. They are very different things. We know it's coming. It's just a matter of when. That's why I was being a little bit sort of blasé about the jobs market. But you're the D.C. insider. What do you think? I think that the short-term market cares, Sully, and the long-term market doesn't. Uh, Short-term market cares about things like today. And you'll see the risk trade go on. You'll see the NASDAQ that's so dependent on short, uh, low rates for longer starts to rally a bit today. This is a short-term knee-jerk reaction. Longer term, I think you're exactly right. But I think we are also at risk here, Sully, of maybe leaping to the most obvious, easiest uh, conclusion and perhaps not considering other options. I mean, okay, we've got COVID at the end of August. We've also got, you know, kids going back to college. That can affect some of the unemployment and, and jobs data. What we have, though, is a lot of jobs opening. And it's not so much that, you know, okay, so we don't have people taking those new jobs. That's the problem. Is it really COVID or are there other reasons people aren't coming back to work? When I see data like this, I think you have to stop and be a little bit more thoughtful because we are seeing trends in terms of the workforce participation rate. We know that wages are up. There are incentives for people to come back. Maybe we ought to scratch the head a little bit here and You know, because this is another little whiff, perhaps, of stagflation, and that's starting to come into my worry list. Well, the the kids being back in school is probably going to help add a few million jobs, let's hope, because really, I mean, for them to be out of school last year was just devastating for so many working families. All right, let's move on. The jobs number is really just kind of one piece of fruit in this market basket, if you will. There's so many other things, right? There's earnings, there's money flows, there's psychology. 
And most of these seem pretty good, at least for now. Tom Lee of Fundstrat says that stocks will post a rally in September. Oh, and Bank of America says a strong tape is flipping anecdotal consensus from correction to melt up, whatever that means. So, Rob, do we keep riding this rally? And if so, when would we know when to get off? Well, that's a tough one. I think we could get a pullback at any time. But one of the things that I looked at in the data today is that the bond market appears to be looking through Delta and the employment number, which is a very good sign. And, you know, I think everybody believes, and we're certainly in this camp, that it's not the end of the cycle. This is this is artificial. It's it's Delta based. And the tactical folks, folks uh, like John, will trade will trade that data and they should and, and they should. Um, because there's money to be made, and you're seeing a lot of sector in style rotation underneath the surface. I think you also have the Fed, which appears to be a, a little bit in a box, right? A- a- anytime they're going to step back, I think there's going to be volatility created by that. And I-, I think this latest data gives them more room not to step back because it's it's kind of not a normal environment right now. But if you're looking kind of longer term, I think you have to stay the course. You have to stay bullish. Profits are growing. That's generally bullish for stocks. Um, I would say what you have to focus, though, on, Brian, is the potential. And I think uh, there's probably not a lot of multiple expansion left in this type of environment. I would be more focused on markets delivering what looks like traditional profit growth. And that's the types of returns you can you can expect. Yeah. Well, John Najarian, I got to give you credit. By the way, I'm mad at your brother because he said that Minnesota would cover last night. They didn't by half a point at Hertz. Um, uh, but I'll give you credit, Dang. which is that on Monday, oh, okay. <clears throat> boom. Yeah, <clears throat> I won't eat this weekend. On Monday, you said that the jobs market was going to be weak. You, you called it. Um, so good mm-hmm. call there. How much does it alter the Fed's thinking, though? Again, because the data and again, going the, the extended unemployment benefits, whatever you think of them, they roll off uh, on Monday. And the Fed has basically said they're going to have to ride this out for a few months. I mean, when will we get data that I don't want to say actually matters, but is is cleaner? The data give us a more real sense of what's happening under the hood. Well, thank you, Brian. Um, I think uh, September 22nd, uh, that jobs report today took uh, that September 22nd uh, Fed announcement off the table. Um, there, there will be a Fed announcement, but it will not be that tapering has begun. That will start, I believe, Brian, in November after we have uh, basically September and October data. We don't have a meeting um, in October. So after we have data from both the September employment as well as October, that's when I think we get it. And to your point, Brian, rolling off of these enhanced benefits as well as, and that was a great point, uh, about the back to school, allowing parents to get back to work um, in a more meaningful way. I think that uh, those two things are what's going to drive a much better jobs market, quite frankly, Brian, um, in this actual September report, which will be the first week in October, and then the October report, which will be the first week in November. So I think the Fed makes that announcement, Brian, in November. I do not disagree with Shannon that um, that will be a, yeah. not, not a nothing burger. We'll probably see a tick up 
in rates, but I'm not looking for a massive jump in rates at all. We're going to taper for months and months. Um, and then perhaps in 2023, they'll actually start raising rates. Yeah, and I know a lot of people in the South and in Illinois where you are saying, what do they mean back to school? Our kids have been in school for weeks. Well, if you don't know, by the way, in the Northeast, most of the kids go back to school after Labor Day, at least here in New Jersey and the New York area. So we probably have half the country just going back. We'll see if that matters well. Probably might get a spike in positive testing, too, because all the kids are going to be testing going back to school. Just something to note. Anyway, if the markets are a ride, so to speak, then maybe... Tech has got to be the space mountain of stocks, right? The big draw. They've been hot, but (laughs) people don't seem too concerned. Again, Bank of America flow data, Shannon, showing the largest inflows into technology since all the way back in March. And I know we're kind of beating the same horse here, but at the same time, at what point do we get concerned? When does it get too hot? Well, I think we get concerned when we get concerned about the execution and, you know, we, you know, we talked earlier about how important it is to continue to deliver on earnings given the valuations. And I think that if you feel uncomfortable with valuations, a place where you probably feel a lot more comfortable is in big tech. I mean, they took a breather earlier this year. Um, Valuations really aren't all that stretched given the execution in the big tech space over the last several years. And so if you are looking to create a barbell or some insulation in your portfolio against this backdrop that we just discussed, and you're not all that concerned about rates, (laughs) which I don't think any of us are particularly concerned in the near term, then why wouldn't you be interested in adding to some of these technology names that seem to create an opportunity? I think we've seen this rotation out of, you know, high flying, um, you know, work from home, stay at home stocks in the tech space, back to some of the boring names that many of us own in our portfolios. And I don't think that's a negative because if I look at management execution, I feel very confident that these companies are going to continue to benefit from enterprise spend and that they are going to continue to deliver results that justify the prices that I'm paying for them today. All right, because the Minnesota-Ohio State game, I'm grouchy, Jim, so I'm going to be tough on you a little bit. I'm kidding. (laughs) Shannon, I'm going to answer Shannon's question and then want you to respond. Why wouldn't you be, you know, you know, why would you be worried? Well, I'll tell you what, is it just me? The Department of Justice, there was a story yesterday about them poking around Google. Facebook gets all kinds of negative attention from Congress. They've talked about Amazon as well. We've got an FTC uh, under the President Biden where some of the commissioners have said in the past, that maybe there needs to be antitrust action. I'm not saying there will be, Jim, but I do wonder that we're, we're just plowing to new highs all under the guise of, of people in the government sort of sniffing around, maybe trying to break these companies up. Or maybe that's a good thing from a stock perspective. Sully, look, I like what you're doing, all right? You're trying to poke holes in the bull thesis. It's appropriate to do that. Just being mindlessly bullish is not smart. Having said that, I'm not buying the bear case that you're putting out there for the simple reason that what you're talking about has been there for years and years and years. And so if you invested or, in, in fact, failed to invest in the FANG stocks because you thought that uh, regulation was going to become onerous, you've missed out on monster, monster gains. 
And I don't suggest that you invest uh, being concerned about regulation right now. It's just not a winning strategy. By the way, had a conversation similar with my good friend uh, Michael Farr yesterday about another topic. How about the Mm -hmm. debt level in the U.S.? And I said to him, I said to him, look, yeah, one day it's going to bite us in the fanny. So is regulation. But you know what? It's not today. And if you're investing on that premise today, you're going to miss out. So you got to beware of those of those ghosts, those boogeymen that you can say, see, that's the thing that's going to bite us. Sure, it'll bite us. But if it bites us two years from now, you've missed out on some monster gains. Well, fair enough. And we'll go to the aforementioned Michael Farr. And I'm not saying it's a bare case. That's not my job, Mike. I'm not saying that this is some it's going to come out. But there was literally a story yesterday. I think it was a Reuters article that the DOJ is actively looking around Google's ad business. We've had FTC commit. This is not two years ago. This is a different administration with different people. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but even if it's a 5% chance, I think it should be on people's radar. No? Uh, it absolutely should be. So three things. First of all, yesterday, Labenthal said it was going to bite us on the tush. Eh, fine. Uh, second, uh, no, I, that's, that's, look, that's worth clarifying. We're going to go through all the 1910 no, words for but because we can't say that. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Exact. I think I actually think Labenthal knows them all. So just go right back to him. Uh, Yes, exactly. So, uh, you you know, I I think that uh, uh, we should be a little bit concerned about where we are uh, with the debt. It's not a problem now, but it's still building. Uh, To your point, Brian, it's tough to tell how much of this is political noise, particularly in Washington. We know that these companies are massive behemoths. We also know that they're executing and that they're making money and that a lot of them have some pretty darn good margins. It's politically attractive right now to attack big business, to attack big America, to go after the, the uh, all-pervasive tech stocks that seem to know everything about us. Um, we saw the minority yeah. leader uh, yesterday coming out saying you can't you, you just you can't look into my personal data well maybe maybe not uh, does it turn out to be a real threat could these companies be broken up yes but I'm gonna go back to Labenthal's point it doesn't look like anything materially is gonna happen anytime soon and the investment case stays intact therefore back to Chuck Prince a couple of decades ago the music is still playing and it gets very expensive if you stop dancing early. I like the old reference to the Citigroup CEO of decades ago, pulling one out of the hat there. Rob Seachin, your comment on big tech. I know you pretty much own all the FANG stocks, and it doesn't seem like there's any sign that you're going to sell anytime soon, is there? No, everything but Netflix, really. And, uh, you know, it's a really hard time, right? Because you have interest rates that are still supportive. You have enormous gains. We manage we manage mostly uh, taxable money for our clients. I think the secular trends that are in place for a lot of these stocks are very powerful. You have some cyclicality in a number of them, like Google, uh, with ads and, and, and travel and travel picking up. But it should be no surprise that as, as, as Delta and the jobs numbers have come into the discussion this week that, and in the prior weeks, really, but that these stocks have done well because they're really heavily tied to interest rates, at least over the short term. Right. And interest rates have been pretty, pretty well behaved. And so 
Um, you know, my view is you continue to have to own these stocks for their long-term characteristics, but you pick up a lot of optionality by being brave enough to tip yeah. into the market and buy some of the cyclical in value stocks, which is what we're doing. What we're doing every time we see a pullback. They led last week, and then they gave a lot back this week, and we're stepping in. I happen to believe that interest rates are going to head higher. I think that there that, that a lot of people feel that way. It's just a question of when and it's okay to buy in advance because you pick up a lot of that profit as as those things happen and so having uh, as i always say a foot on both these keys makes a lot of sense to me so keeping quality tech is somewhere that uh we're going to be invested for quite some time i think oh yeah i don't i don't see how interest rates can go any lower to be honest with you but you never know all right well a big but different part of technology are the semiconductors. And there's some action in the semi-stocks today. you got Broadcom getting its price target raised by, well, a bunch of firms after beating earnings estimates and posting record revenues. NVIDIA also getting price target hikes, even though the stock is up more than 70% already this year. John Nigerian, those are the big names. You've owned Applied Materials. Don't know if you still do. Do you own any of the options and or the equity in this group? I do. Um, and I'm a real believer in big tech, Brian. Uh, you know, I loved the optimism um, over uh, by analysts this, just this week in Apple, pushing it to like a $3 trillion market cap just overnight. So um, this sector, you're talking about semiconductors. Yeah, I love them. Um, I think they are going to continue to perform well, if not just outright scream higher into the end of the year. They're a big beneficiary, of course, of that push off uh, all the way out till the November meeting by the Fed. If it looked more like, Brian, that we reported a million jobs today, which would have been at the high end of estimates, and uh, the Fed could say on September 22nd, okay, we are going to start tapering effective next week, which I think they would have had we had a number like that. Um, I think that has been pushed off, off as I said, yeah. till November. And I do believe it'll be November, Brian, but I think you have runway. And that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you run into a fence at the end of the runway in November. Far from it. But I don't see a reason to get out of those semiconductors where they have yeah. all that demand. NVIDIA has just been the outperformer of all outperformers. And unfortunately, I just have a hard time holding on to that one. Okay. And, and if, you, if I'm repeating what you said, John, forgive me. The reason John is saying September to November is that there is no October Fed meeting. It's September 22nd and November 3rd. Just if you're circling your calendars at home, put that in there in your iCloud calendar. Jim, you also <laughs> like the semis. Any particular semis you like more than others? Well, I'm particularly uh, uh, favorable towards NXPI. I forget if we talked about that yesterday. It feels like a familiar uh, recent discussion. But that's heavy into the automotive sector, which we know is just dying for chips and will basically pay anything for chips. Uh, then there's also Qualcomm, which is my favorite within the telecommunications sector. But I want to make a broader comment about the semiconductors. I think we're all going to agree that this is kind of like what steel was uh, in the last century or railroads two centuries ago. You have to have them in your portfolio. And if you're wondering, how do I buy them now? Because they have had a pretty torrid run. My advice to you is if you don't have your position in semis, take a toehold now 
average into it over the next three, four months. Don't wait. You have to have a toehold. And if you're uncomfortable at these levels, just build it gradually over the next three to four months. But these are these are companies you're going to hold for years, years, plural. Years. Wow. All right. Let's move on. I guess we'll call it tech. It's got tech in the name. It's biotech. And it's been breaking out. If you're not paying attention, maybe you should. Is this everything rally, as Tom Lee liked to call it, seems to be happening. The S&P Biotech Index on track for a second positive week. It is close to breaking above that 200-day moving average for the first time since all the way back in June. Shannon Sokocha, you live up there in Boston, where pretty much every biotech that's not on the West Coast is based. Give us, give us some local intel. Well, I I think, you know, for better or for worse, the pandemic has really spotlighted the necessity um, of the uh, research that's going on at many biotech firms. You know, we've seen this shift from public to private research, uh, particularly in rare diseases or for, you know, newly found viruses, for instance. And so I think that there is some increased interest in the biotech space. I think what's most important is that I believe that we're on the precipice of a, a, a meaningful uptick in M&A. If you think about the way that Google has built their incubator um, internally, it's both internal, but also to allow for the acquisition of new technology. Biotech is the new frontier of innovation. And so I think what you're going to find is that for some of these, you know, whether it's mRNA, uh, some of these new technologies and innovations in the biotech space, there are going to be buyers for these. And so I think that the enthusiasm in biotech is well placed. And I do think that it's going to lead to a realization by many of these big pharma companies that they need to be doing more in this space in order to create therapies that are multidimensional and can be used in in different diseases and to fight different things that we're grappling with in in the space. Yeah, and and we've got, uh, unfortunately, a lot of health issues that we're going to have post-pandemic as well. Michael Farr, very quickly, a new name to me anyway, maybe they Catalent. You own it? Never heard of them. Yeah, I do own Catalan. We like it in the biotech space. They're kind of a diversified biotech company. The growth rate has been terrific. Uh, and I, they've also got a pipeline that's very interesting to us, too. It's in my SMIDCAP uh, portfolio, and um, we're going to hold that one for a while, Brian. We like Catalan. All right, new name there, Catalan. CTLT is the ticker. All right, let's move on to some investment committee moves to wrap up this week as well. Jim, we're going to start with you. Something about a train that's magic, I guess, because you just bought Union Pacific. (laughs) Yeah, I I do like trains. It's true. Uh, I think it's probably a tragedy that I haven't owned a railroad in many years. Uh, I've wanted to. I've looked at Union Pacific. It's the biggest of the public railroads. Uh, it's, It's clearly in a consolidation phase right now. It had the wonderful bounce off of the pandemic lows. If you believe, as I do, that we're early in economic expansion, and if you think that infrastructure is going to come, you're going to have to be shipping things by rail. I don't care whether that's lumber, whether it's finished goods, whether it's polyethylene pellets. You're going to see a lot of shipments by rail. Good management at Union Pacific. They've done well with their operating ratio. So I like the price I'm buying it at, and uh, here we go. All aboard. There we go. All right. I got the old throwing the old Amtrak slogan. If anybody got that. All right. That's it for now. But we're going to get more. We're going to get Rob's picks and some others. But we do have to take a commercial break. It's time to bring in a little bit of revenue. So get Rob and others picks after the break. Plus the fintech wars. They're heating up. PayPal, Robinhood, SoFi, Square, all kind of now encroaching on each other's turf. It's like the Warriors fintech style. 
We'll talk more about it coming up. And as a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. Download it today. Come out and play. We're back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The FDA and the CDC are reportedly asking the White House to scale back or delay its plans to offer COVID vaccine boosters to the general public later this month. They're asking for more time to look at test results, and they also want stronger data from Moderna for its shot. New Jersey's governor says that the death toll from flooding caused by Tropical Storm Ida has now increased by 2 to 25, with at least six people still reported missing. 49 are reported dead so far in the Northeast as police go door to door in some areas still looking for possible victims. And tonight on the news at 7 p.m. Eastern, New York City looks at new evacuation procedures after several people drowned in basement apartments. And Disney says that its new Marvel movie, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, brought in almost $9 million for preview screenings yesterday. That compares to just over $13 million for Black Widow's previews. Now, unlike Black Widow, Shang-Chi will only be shown in theaters to start. You're now up to date, Brian. I'll send it back to you. Rahel Solomon. Rahel, thank you very much. All right, let's get back now, as promised, to some of our investment committee moves. We've got time for one of them, and that is Rob Seachin. You just bought... General Dynamics and the XLF and added to small caps, which are starting to show some signs of life again. Yes, sir. So uh, General Dynamics, we run in our opportunistic portfolio that we, we do that in partnership with Fundstrat. Geopolitical play uh, following our exit from Afghanistan. The general focus uh, of the U.S. defense budget is moving towards uh uh, traditional big power confrontation. General Dynamics is responsible for the future of the entire leg of the new uh, nuclear triad, and they're a huge player in submarines. And so we think it's a good time to be a buyer of that stock. Um, financials, we talked about our view on rates. Um, 
Every time we see a little volatility uh, in this sector, we've been we've been kind of an episodic buyer um, with the signs of re recovery kind of rolling as expected overseas and, and becoming more synchronized. We think it's time to, to, to kind of add some more exposure there. And then small caps, just a further bet on on the cyclical recovery and if you look small cap value has outperformed on a on a year-to-day basis but more recently it's given some back so what we're actually doing is playing that underperformance of small cap value versus growth and buying some of those value names so again that that cyclicality is a big part of what we're doing on any on any sell-offs and we think we're going to be rewarded as we as we transition beyond delta and uh, beyond some of the issues that plague the market right now and get rewarded later in the year all right some moves there now let's move on because there's a lot of moves in fintech. The wars are heating up as all these big ones and a bunch of small ones start encroaching on each other's turf. CNBC Pro highlighting that story today. As PayPal said earlier this week, it was exploring ways to let users trade individual stocks. First broken by our Kate Rooney, by the way. Shout out to Kate. So let's talk more about how the experts might be playing this space. John Najarian, on Monday I joked that the five of us were the only people in America not starting a fintech. John, you probably are, actually. So is there any one of the big publicly traded ones that you like more than others, leadership-wise, strategy-wise? What? Well, Brian, um, on that news that uh, PayPal was getting into that brokerage space, um, not that I think that's a bad move, but the stock had been performing decently for us, and I'm out of PayPal. But the competitor to PayPal with the cash app and a bigger focus on uh, digital assets like Bitcoin uh, is Square. And that's the one, Brian, that I really like right here. Nothing wrong with um, owning some of these miners as well. I mean, just take a look. With Bitcoin trading through 50,000 again, um, we're seeing a lot of interest in Mara, in MicroStrategy, in BTCH and so forth. Um, all of these different... Uh, players in the digital asset space, even though, of course, many of us used to believe that MicroStrategy was something else. Now that they've got five billion in Bitcoin, yeah, it's a Bitcoin play. HUT8 um, as well, that HUT. Um, all of these, I think, are really interesting plays into the year end, Brian, because in 2017, um, I'm sure some will say, yeah, Doc, but we broke down right after 2017. Correct. But Bitcoin had a run from the fall that carried it from basically 3,000 towards yeah. 20,000. I'm not saying we repeat the exact same pattern, Brian, but we certainly are set up to do very well over the next three and four months. John, quickly, switch Ethereum. Broke above 4,000 again today. Are you bullish on, on Ether as well or no? Yeah, I think it tops uh, Bitcoin, uh, Sully, uh, in the short term for market cap, not for price, of course, because one's, 40, uh, one's 50, 1,000 and the other's 4,000. But it's going to go over mar market cap of Bitcoin this year, Sully. And then uh, when we do the wow. next halving, uh, the rewards that miners get, that's when Bitcoin retakes its position. But yeah, Ethereum is just on fire. Yeah, it certainly has been. And that big shift of uh, proof of work to proof of stake certainly is, uh, or flip that, by the way, is, yep. is a big move there. All right, very quickly, Jim, Visa, a fintech? Really? 
Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll take I'll take the slight there. Um, it's what I've got. I mean, I said to you yesterday that I'm more enthusiastic about the traditional balance sheet banks like Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, and I went through a long list of reasons why, which are, which are still applicable. Um, you know, that that's where I'm going to be right now. And Visa is the best I can do within fintech. I'll let I'll let you guys have a lot of fun without me. Not a slight at all. I thought it was kind of a cool way to intro it because people don't think of it that way. All right. For more on the fintech wars, go to CNBC.com slash pro. Big story up today. All right. Well, another big oil company in the spotlight of activists. This time it is Chevron, the very latest next on Halftime. Stick around. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. First, it was ExxonMobil. Now Chevron in the crosshairs of hedge fund engine number one. Leslie Picker is here now with the latest developments. Leslie, it's, a bit of, it's been a big story this morning, and the little guys at engine number one, they're not afraid to punch up. Yeah, I mean, when they had their victory with Exxon earlier this year, they were able to get three seats on the board. That was seen as just a huge long set, long shot from the outset. They had just a tiny stake worth $50 million, and they were able to prevail. Now, it's not surprising that they would, of course, go after other targets on the heels of that success. Chevron, I'm told, did meet with representatives of engine number one. Uh, and so this is kind of early stage here. It's expected that if they were to launch some sort of a a campaign in the future at Chevron and elsewhere, that it would be similar to what they did at engine number one, which was so successful because it was a proxy fight cloaked in this idea of sustainability, this ESG tailwind that they are able to ride even with just a tiny stake in these companies. So they also urged the company at Exxon to be better about capital allocation. They had some benefit because Exxon hadn't been performing quite well. Uh, I'm told that they haven't formally launched a campaign against Chevron, uh, but they've also reportedly been in touch with other investors about pulling together a group to buy shares, which is really how they were able to be so sec- so su- successful uh, in it, in their prior campaign. Now, the biggest investors in Chevron, they're the large fund managers. You've got Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, Capital Research. Brian, it's important to note this is very, very early stage, but it's not unexpected that they would go and talk to uh an oil major, maybe several oil majors, after as our colleague David Faber has been uh, reporting that they've been talking with several companies. Now, Chevron, in response to this, they said in a statement to CNBC that they do have contingency plans to respond to many different types of events, including an activist investor. These plans are regularly updated in the normal course of business. We engage regularly with shareholders in constructive two-way dialogue and look forward to discussing the next chapter of our lower carbon story with them later this month. Now, that's key here, Brian, this lower carbon story. You know you've covered this well. There's this pivot that's been going on in the oil and gas industry, largely in response to shareholders like this. Nonetheless, you can see their Chevron shares up about 15 percent this year, S&P up 21 percent over that same time period. Um, And 
Chevron shares trading a yeah. bit lower today after some gains in the pre-market, Brian. Yeah, we, you know, we were out there and with Chevron at their headquarters, I don't know what it was, been a month now, I guess, a little over a month. And we actually asked Mike Worth about potential activist challenges. And he kind of, you know, he gave sort of the, the standard answer uh, that they were, you know, ready and, and et cetera. But to your point, yeah, it, you know, if you're engine number one, which, by the way, I've talked to those guys, so, same as you, uh, they're small, but they're well connected because they just have been all doing this for a while. They're going to poke around. If it worked once, why not try to work again? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's their job as an activist investor. And, you know, you do kind of come off with the way these proxy fights work is when you do have a big success like this, especially one where no one was really expecting it to happen from the outset. And then, you know, everyone was surprised in the aftermath. The best thing you can do is to keep up that momentum. And so it's not too surprising that they would be meeting with companies and trying to figure out what makes sense for them right now uh, in terms of, of their next target. But it's it's unclear that they actually have a significant stake at this point in time in Chevron, which I think is why you can see somewhat of a muted reaction uh, to Chevron shares today. Well, listen, they don't they didn't have a big one in ExxonMobil as well. They're not that big of a thing. And I like Chris and the gang. If they're watching. Hi. Give Leslie a call. (laughs) Uh, They don't have the money to, to, to do a big stake, but they got politics on their side. There's politicians out there basically saying, shut down the fossil fuel industry tomorrow. I mean, and I'm not even exaggerating. So they've got the legislation and the regulation and some of the political muscle on their side. And when you've got that on your side, I'm not sure you need a big stake. By the way, I wasn't going to watch Fast Money tonight, but now I will because you are hosting (laughs) the show. Or six o'clock, right? I'm hosting at six. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my headshot right there uh, for all the world to see. But yes, thank you for watching, Brian. I appreciate that. I'll watch both the five now and the six because Jim has been off all week as well. 6 p.m. tonight, Fast Money, special hour. You just changed my Friday plans, Leslie Picker. Thank you. Well, you can have a drink in your hand. I won't won't prevent you from doing that. Oh, I will because the Hokies also kick off at 6 p.m. tonight against UNC. So I'll DVR that, watch you, and then go back. (laughs) Anyway, Leslie, thank you. Thanks. Go Hokies, by the way, tonight. (laughs) Uh, Straight up win against the Tar Heels. I'm calling it. All right, stay with us. John's latest trades and unusual activity next on Halftime. All right, time now for unusual activity. John Nigerian, what are you seeing? Well, Brian, um, one of those miners that I was talking about, Hut 8. H-U-T is the symbol here, and boy, have they been coming for calls in here. You know I like these three Vs, volatility, volume, and velocity. It has all three. It's doubled in the past month, and they're betting that it goes up another 50% from here, Brian, because they're buying 9,100 of the September 15 calls. That's very bullish. I didn't buy those, though. I bought the 10s. I intend on selling upside calls against it. Uh, That's a September play. Second one, take a look at CRM, Salesforce.com. They're buying 6,600 of the October 270 calls with the stock at 265. Again, I bought an at-the-money 265 call, Brian. I intend on selling higher calls against it. This one, not nearly the rapid time decay that you get in the Septembers, but I am in both trades, Brian. All right, good stuff there. Unusual activity, John. Thank you very much. All right, the committee is ready to answer some of your questions on this Friday and Ask Halftime. That is next. Down, down about 104 points, about three-tenths of 1%. We're back right after this. 
All right. Welcome back. The investment committee is answering some of your questions. Shannon, you are up first. Billy in California writes, Shannon, do you still have Alibaba? What's your opinion on it? Billy, I do still have Alibaba in my portfolio, and it's been such a challenging year. Going into this year, this was my highest conviction pick in the portfolio. Excited about the China reopening, excited about emerging markets in general. Um, clearly, what we're seeing is that Alibaba in particular has been beset by being a big part of ETFs and mutual funds, which are being sold off, both Asia-focused and China-focused, based on the common prosperity mandate. So I think if you have a longer-term time horizon, and you can add to the position here, you can do that. But I would say the short to midterm is really challenging, and we are looking for potentially another place to put this capital in the in the near term. Okay, well said. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. Michael, Phil in Oklahoma writes, FedEx <laughs> continues to slide well off its high. Should I stay with this stock? FedEx. Uh, Phil, thank you for the question. Sully has known me for a long time and will tell you that I can be wrong occasionally. Uh, this stock was up 17 percent year to date back in May or June, right around there. 17 percent gain. It's given most all of it back. It's still up a couple of percent for the year. I'm caveating the fact that I can be wrong, but this is a table pounder for me. I love this company. Twelve times earnings. Growing earnings at 15 percent. It's got a peg ratio of less than one. So uh, and it's got a 1.1 percent dividend. It is a reopening trade. It's not going anywhere. It's got a solid, ba solid balance sheet. I like FedEx. I will buy it new in portfolios where I don't own it. OK, next up is for Jim. Sam in North Carolina asks, I have 25 years to dedicate to the market. Which one should I dedicate those years to McDonald's or Starbucks? Fascinating question. Yeah, Sam, I love the idea of a 25-year time horizon. Uh, that's even too long for me, I'll tell you, but go with it. Uh, my answer is Starbucks, and this really comes down to an opinion on where consumer tastes are on the margins. I think Starbucks just feels, looks a little bit healthier than McDonald's. They're both good choices, but the tie goes to Starbucks. Tie goes to Starbucks. All right, that's all the time we have. The final trades are next on Halftime. All right, welcome back. It is final trade time. Rob, why don't you kick it off? Sure. EOG Resources, cyclical name, trading at nine times next year's earnings with a 10% free cash flow and 20% dividend growth. It's off 20% uh, from its highs with very low debt and cheap production costs. Um, I think their yep. margins are going to be great and the stock's going to do, uh, do terrific in this cyclical rotation. Michael. DCI Donaldson, it's an 8% pullback. I think you buy the pullback, increase the dividend for 24 consecutive years. John? You got a nice uh, percent, 2% uh, pullback in Pulte today, Brian. We noticed people coming in, buying upside calls. I bought calls in Pulte during the show. Jim? Uh, CVS, uh, you're going to see more booster shots promoting earnings, and the balance sheet continues to get cleaned up. Okay. And Shannon? Love Jim's UNP trade, but PayPal's mine. We're already landed with many subscribers, and I love the idea of expanding that. All great stuff. Have a great long weekend, everybody. Thanks for watching Halftime, The Exchange.
begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.